0: My name is uh, David Hempton and as Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, it's my pleasure and privilege to welcome you all here this evening. I should also say that the lecture tonight is live webcast. So we welcome our viewers uh, wherever they may be. And uh, to everyone in the room, just a quick reminder to please silence your phones and communication devices and all other alarm signals. And um, thank you very much. So the conference entitled Christianity race and mass incarceration was conceived and planned by my colleagues on the faculty professors, Michelle Sanchez and Matthew Potts. And I'm grateful to them for bringing together scholars from all over the country to discuss this vital and disturbing issue. We look forward very much to hearing professor Willie Jennings um, from Yale Divinity School present the keynote address tonight. So welcome, especially to you. Thanks so much. Uh, and welcome all uh, participants in the conference. The conference panels tomorrow will further investigate how Christian history and theology have contributed to carceral punishment in the United States, how racism has worsened the problem, and consider how greater understanding and religious activism might contribute something to the difficult business of trying to dismantle uh, the carceral state. There will be panels of scholars addressing 19th century practices, current policy, theological questions, and also a panel of activists offering strategies for today and the future. Brian Stevenson, in his very powerful and disturbing book, Just Mercy, which I read over the summer, writes that: quote, when I first went to death row in December 1983, America was in the early stages of a radical transformation that would turn us into a to an unprecedentedly harsh and punitive nation and result in mass imprisonment that has no historical parallel. Today we have this is still quoting from him today. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. The prison population has increased from 300,000 people in the early 1970s to 2.3 million people today. Sevenfold increase. There are nearly 6 million people on probation or on on parole. One in every 15 people born in the United States in 2001 is expected to go to jail or prison. One in every three black male babies born in this century is expected to be incarcerated. So not to get too much into numbers, but it is a fact that the United States has 4% of the world's population and a fourth of the world's prisoners. And this does not count the nearly three to 400,000 immigrants held in detention centers in the United States each year. The US has also has by far the highest incarceration rate in the world with a rate nearly 50% higher than the nations with the next two highest rates of incarceration, Russia and Rwanda. These numbers are of course, deeply disturbing. But as you all know very well, the numbers merely tabulate and betray something far, far deeper. As Tanahisi Coates put it in his 2015 Atlantic article on what has happened to the black family in the age of mass incarceration, quote, it is not possible to truly reform our justice system without reforming the institutional structures, the communities, and the politics that surround it. In short, there are complicated historical, social, racial, and political questions that attend to this phenomenal growth of incarceration. The end of Jim Crow, the Southern strategy, the war on drugs, mandatory minimum sentencing, the rise of life without parole sentencing, as well as normative, cultural, and theological questions of punishment, retribution, and redemption which affect our attitudes towards and the practices of carceral punishment. So these are all issues that the conference hope to address. It's a full program and I'm deeply grateful to Michelle and to Matthew for bringing us all together to convene a conversation here at HDS. To get us started, it's now my pleasure to introduce my colleague, uh, Michelle Sanchez, who is an Assistant Professor of Theology at the Harvard Divinity School. Professor Sanchez received her doctorate in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard. Her research interests include the Christian movement of reform and the complicated long-lasting legacies of Protestantism, along with the complex interrelationships between theology, politics, and rapid social change that marked 16th century Europe. She also studies ways of reading theology that are attentive not only to the traditions themselves, but also to how theological writing responds to concrete historical conditions and general human concerns. She has published many articles on Calvinism and its influence on the post-reformation world, and is the author of a forthcoming book with Cambridge University Press entitled The Resignification of the World. Please join me in welcoming my colleague, Professor Michelle Sanchez, to the podium to introduce our keynote speaker for this evening. Michelle, thank you.
1: Thank you to Dean Hempton and greetings to everyone. It's so wonderful to see all your faces here in this room for this keynote lecture, which as you all know, kicks off our conference on Christianity, race and mass incarceration. Um, You're probably all aware of this, but just to make clear, there will be four panels tomorrow in this very room. So we hope to see many of you return. And it's my honor to introduce tonight's speaker, but before I do, I don't want to miss the opportunity to begin with a litany of gratitude for the many, many people whose work and vision made this entire event possible. So on behalf of my colleague Matthew Potts, uh, we are grateful first to the faculty of Divinity here at Harvard Divinity School for awarding us the grant, the money, that made all this possible, that allowed us to bring all these wonderful people here. We also would like to thank the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law School, and the Religions and the Practice of Peace Initiative here at Harvard Divinity School for co-sponsoring the conference and the HDS Low Income Student Advocates, the Prison Education Project um, for sponsoring for their support for this event and the Harambe Students of African Descent. This event would not have been possible, and I mean this, without the incredible team of support staff that have impressed me to no end. And I would especially like to thank Matthew Turner, Marguerite Jenkins, and Jennifer Conforti, as well as our students, Nicole Powell, Angel Calvin, and Salwa Tareen. And I would also like to add my thanks to Matthew Potts, who had the initial idea for this conference and did so much of the legwork to make it happen. We are all grateful. So now finally, it is my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker, Professor Willie James Jennings, who will be delivering a lecture entitled The Christian and the Prison. Professor Jennings comes to us from Yale Divinity School where he is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies. He received his PhD in Religion and Ethics from Duke University where he taught for a number of years before moving to YDS in 2015. In 2010, Professor Jennings published a very important book with Yale University Press titled The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race. The book is a truly groundbreaking example of theology in conversation with history, ethnography, geography, that considers how a theological imagination has long been complicit and formed by a colonial social imaginary, but how that theological imagination can also furnish tools for reimagining people's places and our lives together. The book received the American Academy of Religion Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion in 2011 and in 2015, the Graemeier Award for Outstanding Work in the Field of Religion. Professor Jennings is also a prolific writer of essays on topics that include incarnational theology, art and music, identity and race, Karl Barth and Mahalia Jackson, and teaching and pedagogy, and particularly what it must mean to teach against the global realities of racism or to teach in the wake of violence. To prepare for this introduction, I took some time this week to read and reread some of Professor Jennings' more recent essays. And I have to say that at the time, I did not fully comprehend what a profound experience this would be, particularly because preparing for this conference has given me ample occasion to reflect on what it means to teach theology at this time, in this place, at this historical moment, and to teach texts that remain actively caught up in a theological imagination that reinforces a violent and dehumanizing social order. When Matt and I first began planning this conference a couple of years ago, the reality of mass incarceration felt to many people I know like the most urgent, perhaps even the primary concern of racial justice advocates in America. The other day, I happened to glance at the cover of Michelle Alexander's very important book for bringing this into our national conversation, The New Jim Crow, and I was struck in that moment by noticing the subtitle, which reads, Mass Incarceration in an Age of colorblindness. Because honestly, it felt a little bit vintage. A lot has changed since that book was published in 2010, or at least a lot has been clarified on a mass public scale since 2010. Because I expect that even those who might have wanted to insist on a colorblind America five or seven years ago would be hard-pressed now to defend the idea that this ever was a quote-unquote age to begin with. So many historical facets of racism in America remain live and present today, yet the prison remains as the preeminent site where the most violent effects of white supremacy are eminently tangible. And that's why I'm glad that we're here to focus on that prison today and tomorrow. And it's also why I'm glad that Willie Jennings will be the one leading us into that conversation, because he's been thinking carefully about the intersection of Christianity, race, violence, and punishment for years, for years before Michelle Alexander's book hit the scene and many years before Charlottesville. And he's been thinking in particular about what it means to teach, to have faith, in the aftermath of such violence. I would like to read briefly one short passage from one of his essays that bears that title, quote, Violence is overwhelming. It is always too much for us to handle. Like a hurricane or a tsunami, it can only be endured in hopes that after it subsides, the integrity of life might be restored. No education can keep us from the overwhelming reality that is violence, but there can be an educational process that keeps us from its seductive power. Such a process must begin with educators who have seen more than just the problems of violence, but precisely, where violence lives to fortify people to live against it. So I can think of no better guide to lead us into our conversations tonight and tomorrow than Willie Jennings and please join me in welcoming him.
2: Thank you, Michelle, for those not only wonderful comments in terms of an introduction, but the deep and penetrating insight that you offer to to set our time together. It is a a great honor for me to be here with you um, this evening. I want to thank Drs. Sanchez and Potts for this wonderful invitation and um, the opportunity to be here to talk about such an important, urgent matter to us all. Before I begin, I also want to acknowledge the presence of Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Preston Williams, who, um, who has been for me and for so many others, um, a tremendous mentor, whose work, whose life, whose um, brilliant scholarship Has set the stage for all of us to do our work So it is an honor always to be in your presence, sir Especially with your wonderful wife. So I am so glad you're here. I want to say to the students who are present if you haven't gotten to know this wonderful doctor before you graduate. You should take him out for a cup of coffee. You will learn a lot. So I don't want to fill his calendar up, but (laughs) I do want you to get to, to know him. I bring you warmest greetings from the dean, the faculty, the staff, the students of Yale Divinity School, where we, like you, are engaged in serious intellectual work with one goal, not simply to interpret the world, but to change it, to change it. My talk this evening has a simple title, The Christian and the Prison. The Christian and the Prison. These things are inseparable. The one hovers near the other calling to it as lightning calls forth thunder. Before we can fully grasp the horror of mass incarceration, especially of black and brown bodies, we must first understand this long existing relationship between the Christian and the prison, and the energies, the energies that draw them inextricably toward each other. The prison, as we all know, is much older than Christianity. It has always existed as an enticing work of creation, promising those who wield its power the possibility of creating through destroying. Imagine, imagine having in your hands, having in your hands, the power to take a body and precisely align it with death, slowly or quickly. It is power conjured by kings, emperors, sovereign states alike in order to organize their worlds and discipline their societies. The prison reveals the power of violence used strategically And artistically, it is an art to use violence at the site of the prison. And from the beginning, from the beginning, Christians experienced that power unleashed on their bodies. Anyone who followed this Jesus of Nazareth was destined for intimate relations with the prison. It is at our foundations The followers of Jesus announced that they worshiped a convicted and crucified and resurrected criminal who was, they said, the God of Israel and the one true God. Of course, very few people misunderstood the religious and political implications of this announcement. A new power was in the world, a power that would call into question the ruling political, religious, and social order. Christians from the very beginning were thrown into jails and prisons, beaten and tortured because people connected the dots, this is what we know, between a faith confessed and a world order threatened. Christian faith formed at the site of incarceration because the one we followed was considered profoundly, irredeemably disobedient. Hmm. Disobedient. Jesus, in the eyes of all those who wanted him incarcerated, wanted him tortured, wanted him killed, was the disobedient one. That was the idea pressing through their concerns. Disobedient to the religious authorities and resistant to accepting their political and social judgments. What they construed as disobedience was, in fact, his obedience to God, the one who he claimed a deep intimacy with. His obedience was made a secret by their unbelief. They did not believe, and therefore, they saw him as a heretic and a criminal, two sides of the same bad coin. Christian theologians over the many centuries have never truly reckoned with the full character of the obedience of Jesus. We, we seized upon its soteriological, its saving relevance, but we lost sight of its political and social density. We lost sight of it. Here, this child of God obeys God for our sake. He heals the sick, raises the dead, sets captives free. You've heard this before. This is his obedience. He marks a life of obedience to God precisely in his work of liberation, of emancipating those held captive by death and death's agents. Yeah. But it was an obedience clothed in the optics of disobedience, and therefore an obedience always misidentified, always misidentified. His words, his actions, his very body spoke to those in power of pure disobedience. This is the beginning. This is the beginning, we know, of the solidarity. His solidarity with those identified, and should we say more precisely, misidentified as disobedient. Kelly Brown Douglas and James Cone were both right to point to the deep connection between the body of Jesus and all dark bodies whose flesh has been made, flesh has been made to signify dangerous disobedience. As Carl Barth said, Jesus is the judge judged in our place, judged from the place of conviction and sentencing where appeals would not work and a destiny for punishment a destiny for punishment marked a future jesus is god from the sight of the one designated criminal and christians from our beginning were engaged in a struggle over the optics and reality of obedience and disobedience, a struggle over the dialectics, if you will, of obedience and disobedience, always the dialectic. As Peter and John indicated in Acts 4, 19 and 20, even if religious and political authorities saw their action as dangerous and subversive disobedience and threatened them with more punishment and incarceration, they would obey God. They would obey God. And obedience born in faith is as liberating as it is dangerous. As the great Elizabeth Schusser-Ferenza taught us long ago, it is precisely this dangerously liberating form of obedience to Jesus that the church itself feared because that obedience would look and feel and sound like social political economic and religious disobedience it would signal revolution we are always afraid of obedience to god because we know we know it signals revolution Too many Christians from our very beginning, as you all know this, having studied these matters in your history courses, you students, too many Christians from our beginnings presented an obedience that concealed this liberating obedience, concealed the obedience that would be seen as frightening, revolutionary disobedience. We presented an obedience that served as an apology for citizenship that showed we were no threat to the existing order. Certainly there were many who believed that our obedience to human authorities was only temporary and strategic because this world order, after all, they said, what they surmised was crumbling. So the obedience that flowed through thrones and bedrooms through those imagined as gendered, and those imagined as having none, simply being bodies to be used, through masters and slaves, through men and women. That obedience, they surmised, was passing away, and soon, very soon, the true obedience to God, the true obedience announcing a new world order, would emerge out from within this temporary and strategic compliance. (laughs) But the true obedience to God, the kind that is to this world, radical disobedience, frightening, radical disobedience, it did not fully emerge. It did not emerge fully or clearly. And Christianity, especially as we enter the deep waters of colonial modernity, offered up to kings and emperors, sovereign states, and transatlantic corporations, especially, especially them, offered up what they wanted and needed most in this world not gold, not silver, not profit, not land, obedience. Obedience. And not just obedience, but an obedience imagined in faith. Think, for example, of the genius of the monastic gesture of obedience. Think for a moment about the genius of the monastic gesture of obedience. Here we have the legacy of an obedience that is the prerequisite for understanding. You obey in order to understand. You obey in order to understand how many military, military forms of training are built precisely here. This was was an Augustinian sensibility applied to the body. Now, of course, let's be clear, this was never a blind obedience. It was never a blind obedience. But an obedience that brings understanding, an obedience fully coupled with understanding. And as the famed Dominican priest and theologian Herbert McKay said so brilliantly many years ago, it was an obedience that was a shared project of the entire monastic community. It is not one that is imposed on anyone, but one that all will willingly and freely offer to one another in the mutual search for a consensus in thought Decision and action. This is an obedience that comes through education, formation, conversation, and a willingness to listen. After all, that is the original meaning of the word to obey, to listen, to hear, to listen to one another and those who have gone before us in the great Christian tradition This vision of obedience growing out of the monastic gesture bound obedience to education. Indeed, it would become the inner logic of Western education. It is a vision of obedience that did not simply make education the place to form compliant subjects, but it pressed on us that crucial question that rings down through the centuries, that crucial question, who can be educated? Bless you. Who can be educated? Who who has the, the mental capacities and moral disposition to be formed and to willingly and freely obey? If education is not possible for such a person, then obedience is in doubt. Such an adult or a child, huh, or a child must be handled differently. They must be handled differently if obedience is in doubt. Because if obedience is in doubt, education is in doubt. And at a minimum, at a minimum, they must be sequestered from all those who can understand and will obey. Another important Legacy. Another important example for us is the obedience to the word of God articulated in the Protestant vision or Protestant visions of faith. In this moment, when we are reflecting, some are celebrating, when we are reflecting on the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, we should remember the absolute importance, not of Luther, though Luther is important, but not of Luther, but of William Tyndale. He he is the true father of the Protestant Reformation for the English-speaking world and the one who articulated a comprehensive vision of obedience, so powerful, so clear, that it circulates among us today to this very moment. In his work, The Obedience of a Christian Man, written in 1528, and if you've never read The Obedience of a Christian Man, you really need to read that today. You really do. You will not understand not only Pence and Trump, but you will not understand a lot of people until you read The Obedience of a Christian Man. (laughs) You see, Tyndale offered not just a manifesto for release of the church from what he considered Roman Catholic bondage, But a theological blueprint for reorganizing, for the reorganizing of society through the scriptures. Tyndale imagined a faith held in the hands of every believer and not held in the hands of the church hierarchy. Because it was a faith nurtured by the Bible being held in every believer's hands. For Tyndale, everything begins with the scriptures translated, with the word of God embodied in the particular vernacular of the English people. He believed that with the Bible in hand and the word of God being heard in our hearts, we can clearly understand true obedience to God in this world and not to the church hierarchy. The Bible tells us, Tyndale told us, what the true structure of obedience is. We obey God, but obedience to God comes through a line, a line of obedience. It begins, he said, it begins with children, or excuse me, the Bible says, not Tindale. It begins with children obeying parents which opens up the intimate space of obedience, where wives give what is owed to their husbands, true, authentic obedience. It moves to slaves and indentured servants obeying their masters. And finally, it turns upward toward all of us, all of us obeying kings, princes, and rulers who in turn should obey God, Tyndale said, even if they are tyrants and barely obey God, the line, the line yet holds, hold the line. We obey because we obey the word of God. We obey because we obey the word of God. Tyndale gave us with the translated Bible a natural theology of obedience. A metaphysic of obedience. The line of obedience he drew runs from each individual reading their body, excuse me, reading their body, their Bible, to their bodies, then their homes, then the intimate relations, to rulers and governments, right into God. It is an obedience that does not not need the church or any community of faith. It only needs the word of God in my hands and a commitment to maintain the prevailing social order as long as it is reasonable. Now, certainly Tyndale, as historians have told us, also planted the seeds for the possibility of revolt if the rulers and the government in disobedience to God sought to do two things, to destroy the properly organized family or to take my Bible from me. Then obedience, then obedience demands revolt. But this would be a revolt only to restore the line, restore the proper line of obedience to put in place rulers who obeyed the Bible. Obedience in this Christian frame finds no justification for disobedience. It finds no justification for disobedience other than what I just mentioned, and no qualifications for punishment. Crimes in this regard are not simply crimes, they are acts. Fundamental acts of disobedience to God they are absolute in their immorality and demand a punishment that always indicates we stand before a judging God what you will not find in Tyndale in his natural theology of obedience is the story of Jesus he renders Jesus as simply an obedient subject whose power is to make us obedient There is no disobedient Jesus, no dialectic in which his obedience is actually, his disobedience is actually real obedience. Jesus has come in Tyndale's vision to simply show us the proper organization of home and society and guide us, guide us back into the line, give us holy alignment. So Tyndale constructs the Protestant. He constructs the Protestant reading her Bible, learning her scripture as the perfect subject for any would be ruler and every hopeful nation state. His Protestant is someone ready to obey and clear about the nature of punishment. So, what does this Christian vision of obedience, both Protestant and Catholic, have to do with the prison? Everything especially for those people who entered the colonial world as slaves and colonized subjects. It is the ground, it is the ground on which the prison and its systems of incarceration form in the new worlds. The new worlds of colonial settlers and it is the lens through which our bodies will be read. All bodies will be read through this lens. All bodies will be read through this lens. But not all bodies will read the same. Dark bodies, non-white bodies will be read in essential disobedience. A disobedience down to the bones. Our bodies will be formed. Our bodies will be formed as those always in need of a formation toward obedience. Our bodies, that is, dark bodies, will be formed as always in need of formation toward obedience. Bodies that must always be made to obey, and rarely, if ever, rarely, if ever, to be obeyed. And white bodies will be seen as those to be obeyed, yes, and therefore formed to carry, out, to carry out an obedience and to anchor structures of obedience that are bound ultimately to God. Someone has to anchor obedience in society. What drives this way of reading bodies through obedience, of course, is the commodification of everything in the new worlds, especially people the new world is not simply turned into raw material for our use we are turned into raw material this is the deepest truth of labor in the new world, especially in America. We are turned into raw material. What is an African or indigenous slave if not a life turned into raw material? What is a white indentured servant, a white worker in the new world if not a life turned into raw material? Labor formed in the new world as first a sacrifice of the body, An offering up of the body. Labor is inside always the calculus of commodification. But the legacy that Christianity gave to the West was a vision of obedience, a vision of an obedient world unlike any we've ever seen before. A world where disobedience can easily be discerned and distanced from obedience. But this legacy is not simply a way of seeing the world, but more importantly, a way of constructing the world. You see, obedience, if you don't catch anything else, catch this. Obedience is the inner logic of incarceration and its deepest desire to form obedient bodies. Yet obedience is also the inner logic of societies and their deepest desire to form obedient bodies. The difference, the difference between the prison and society is not only the difference between captivity and freedom, if we want to say that's a difference, but also a difference of intensity and honesty, where institutionalized violence unmasks, unmasks, the desire to control our movement, our actions and our lives. Yet if incarceration and the prison were the realities, were the realities within which Christian faith formed, where Christian faith realized its counter-hegemonic voice inside the body of Jesus. Then, from the early beginnings of colonial modernity, Christian obedience became the reality within which Western societies formed. We did not give to the world, I want to be clear here, we did not give to the world a new form of religious obedience. That's not deep enough in terms of understanding what we gave. We did not give a new form of religious obedience. We gave to the world a way to make obedience coherent and connected across religions. We gave an obedience that permeates moving not only across religions, but through schools and industries, from the ways we educate to the ways we construct neighborhoods, from the ways we organize society to the ways we organize geography. We gave to the world a beautiful, intricate, totalizing obedience. We all here have some sense of this totalizing obedience in the ways it helped to form our criminal anthropology. Hmm? An anthropology inextricably, inextricably bound to racial existence. We have all been taught to discern disobedience most readily, most present in dark bodies. Just think about how many people get upset when an NFL player kneels at a ridiculous football game upset. We've all been taught to discern it quickly in dark bodies. We know the countless stories of men and women whose lives have been framed inside what Kahil Gibran Muhammad so brilliantly described as the condemnation of blackness. Yet our efforts at intervening in and against the effects of this anthropology will be short-sighted until we start to reckon, start to reckon with the ways obedience and disobedience have been structured into our lives and how they in turn energize, they energize the logic of crime, incarceration and punishment in our imaginations. It begins, it begins at the level of the nation state. The United States has made itself a site of obedience for the world. What does it mean to live in a place, to teach or work in a place, where we are formed in the tacit assumption that the rest of the world should obey us? Obedience flows from the rest of the world toward us. Of course, it is never put in such crude terms. Instead, we think and speak from inside the legacy of the monastic gesture of obedience bound to education. We and our allies, allies for the most part formed through Western education, aim at arriving at consensus through conversation. But should we encounter peoples for whom we discern the lack of the collective mental capacity and moral disposition to be formed and to willingly and freely obey then we conclude that they must we conclude that they must be handled differently we in this country expect to be obeyed That expectation is in the air we breathe and the water we drink and so much of the rest of the world, many of you know this, so much of the rest of the world lives with a different expectation. Obey the U.S. and its allies and its agents and its interests or prepare to live in the shadow of the criminal and be always in danger of punishment. To speak against our allies or our interest or our agent is already to speak as though you are and will be a criminal. Daily, we are schooled in the optics of obedience that teach us to read people outside the U.S. geographically or ideologically as would be criminals or innocent depending on whether simply they obey us. The structures of obedience and disobedience move from the nation state to the formation of neighborhoods and communities. Obedience and disobedience is formed in places before it is formed in people. Let me say that again because I want you to catch that. Obedience and disobedience is formed in places before it is formed in people, and too many of us have been oblivious to the geographic formation of incarceral spaces, the prison before the prison, and to the immoral and horrifying sequestering of peoples through modes of segregation that not only limit the opportunities for thriving life but also narrow the vision of what kind of life is even possible. How a neighborhood is constructed or reconstructed gives definitive shape to the moral possibilities of life in a place. I knew a field, I knew a field in a neighborhood where black and brown kids played together. It was a small but important field where kids dreamed the dreams of athletic glory and found the space to enjoy otherwise impossibly difficult lives. But the field was purchased and a fence placed around it with no alternative space for the kids to be. So kids being kids and doing what kids would do, they climbed the fence and restored the field to its original status as their field. So what happened is usually what happens. And you know what happens, usually happens. The police were called. The police came. A struggle, a misunderstanding, and yet, another tragic death of a child, yet another one. The kids, the kids simply by climbing a fence were made active participants in a crime, as the judge said, active participants in a crime. And of course, as I said, there is nothing unusual about this story because it points to a geographic truth. Policing practice always follows zoning policies, which most people who think about policing practice don't think about, which means they often are thinking very narrowly, very short-sightedly. Zoning comes before the gun is taken out. Zoning comes first. What we call crimes and how we designate and design places, what we call crimes and how we design and designate places are inextricably bound together. Where we place sidewalks or not, where we allow bus lines or not, where we place housing developments and with what price points, where we zone for business or not. All this and more determines geographic obedience and disobedience. We are made to obey by the ways our lives are mapped and we are made disobedient through the options afforded us in place. But of course, the question could be asked, have I removed responsibility and agency with what I have just said? I think not because the issue is rarely The issue is rarely about our agency or our responsibility. It's rarely about agency or our responsibility, but how our actions and our responses to our worlds, our geographies are framed in obedience and disobedience. How many deaths and how many crimes, how many arrests are definitively shaped by geography, not just of people being where they should not be, which is often the case, isn't it, with what's called a crime, but of places being constructed in ways that they should not be. It moves from the formation of neighborhoods and communities to the creation of the places and spaces of education and the formation of education itself. Too many colleges and universities, and I've been to quite a few now, too many colleges and universities exist as self-contained bubbles in their communities. Where concerns for safety have taken on exaggerated geographic significance. Too many schools have turned their campuses into fortresses that inculcate students into micro-segregationist habits. They have, they have had many, they, these students have had many of their most pleasurable intellectual and emotional experiences in the sequestered environments of the campus. And they graduate looking to recreate similar geographic conditions. So here is the irony you have. In many cases, you have students who have engaged in radical thinking, radical pedagogies, (laughs) but who will embody when they graduate the same segregationist ways of thinking about geographic life and the same forms of geographic obedience that guide the ecologies of incarceration in their communities. They do the same thing that everyone else does, but they think radical thoughts. (laughs) At the same time, at the same time, we live in the legacy of Western education that carries at its center, uh, the center of its formation process, a refined strain of docility. We should be honest about this, my friends. We should be honest. In the West, especially in this country, you do not move through the educational process without obeying. You and I are here because we obeyed. We have to be honest. We were rewarded. We were rewarded for our obedience. And we all know the stories of those around us who were punished for their disobedience. A thousand shall fall at your left hand, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come nigh thee because you are the obedient one. Early on, Most of us learned, most of us learned that our futures hung in the balance of our obedience. And for so many people of color, the stakes of obedience were and are very high. Where the performance of our obedience is intrinsic to the performance of our intellects especially in elementary school, especially in junior high, especially in high school, and where the fears of assimilation or being seen as assimilated revolve around how, when, and where we perform our obedience. Now, let me be clear. It is not that our educations make us politically or socially economically or spiritually docile, though for some this is certainly the case, but rather they prepare us. They prepare us most often to accept the prevailing ideas of law and order. And as James Forman Jr. noted in his brilliant book, they lead even people of color, even people of color to immediate punitive impulses in the face of crime. We carry out the trajectories of obedience bound to assimilation that began in our education. So the irony often escapes us that an education, an education that should shape us to deeply examine the constructions of law and order, especially their theological foundations, becomes the means through which to form us as obedient subjects in the deployment of practices of law and order. When we witness the deployment of the practices of law and order, we fold our hands, we sit back, we say, what a shame, what a shame. Because we've been taught to sit back, fold our hands, and simply say, what a shame, what a shame. And inside, we're thinking, I'm so glad that's not me. It took a Christian architecture to do that to you. And only, I would suggest, a Christian architecture can start to pull that out. But I might be wrong about that. (laughs) But if the foundations of law and order, crime and punishment, prison, and the systems of incarceration are built on the soil of Christian obedience in the modern world. Then, as I close, I want to return once again to that soil, to that soil to suggest a different relation of Christian obedience to these incarceral realities. Because obedience is an incarceral reality that begin this, I want to return to the soul that, begin that begins with the original one found in the body of the crucified one. That is the original obedience. I want to return to the words of Jesus and to his life. He said to his disciples and all those listening in. You've all heard this before. When I was in prison, you visited me. is Stunning. Stunning passage in the gospel. He identified with the poor and disadvantaged, with those captured in systems of enslavement and, punish, and imprisonment. Bless you. His disciples, in response to Jesus' words, they looked for a temporal alignment. The famous question, when, when were you in prison, Lord? When were you in prison? But Jesus was trying to show them a spatial alignment of his body with those incarcerated and, and to prepare his disciples, to prepare them for the incarceration that was surely to come. It was coming their way because they were following this dangerously disobedient rabbi. So the words of Hebrews 13.3 follow the logic of Jesus' life. Hebrews 13.3, where it says these famous words, Remember those who are in prison, as though you were in prison with them. And those being tortured. Remember those being tortured, as though you yourself were being tortured with them. Rarely heard this passage preached growing up in the church. Rarely heard this passage preached. <laughs> what do you do with it? If you, what do you do with it? You, you hear something in these words. This remembering, of course, was not simply an admonition for visitation. <laughs> no. The remembering has always aimed at the overturning of a world shaped in injustice and addicted to violence. The life of Jesus and the life of a Christian was aimed at the prison, not to speak of its righteousness or its place in a created order, but to show its unrighteousness and its reality as a sign of disorder, not a place to reestablish order. The Christian was aimed as a weapon of righteousness against the mechanisms of control bound up in practices of incarceration. And equally, the Christian was set on a path to break open obedience. We who believe were formed to disrupt the flow And shatter the smooth line of obedience that runs from the body to the family, to human authorities, to governments and nation states. And then to a God that looks nothing like, God that looks nothing like the disobedient, disrupting Jesus. Only through the disruption of the shattering can we have a law that loves and an order that is just, Christians, by the faith, we confess, are aimed at the prison, inextricably linked to deep and constant involvement, not only with those who feel its power, but with unmasking it as an agent of death and drawing down its power And it's intoxicating addiction for those obsessed with control. The sad truth, as you all know, and I'm sure someone would ask a question about this immediately, but let me just say it. The sad truth is that too many Christians have never been introduced to the Jesus who was actually arrested. Just as too many have never been told, they've never been told, that our obedience should look to the world like Jesus which means it ought to look like disobedience it ought to feel and sound and smell like revolution especially especially in relation to our incarceral practices and the political use of prisons of course We need an obedient church, as the liturgy for so many Christian bodies say. We need an obedient church, which means we need a church that does not simply obey, but offers the world a different way to understand obedience, and therefore a different vision of God. A God who sets people free.
1: Many thanks to Professor Jennings for a powerful and important lecture. We will take questions now for I think about 20 minutes or so. And I want to point, so while you're thinking of your questions, I'm going to let him call on people. Um, We have Nicole who is leaving, Oh no, she's not, she's getting a microphone, good. Um, She will be monitoring questions coming in from our online feed. Um, So hi, if you're out there, Um, you can send questions with the hashtag HDSCRI. Um, and we can't promise we'll answer all of them, but we will be looking at them. Um, and the rest of you are welcome to pose your questions now. Thanks.
2: And please tell me your name and and what you do in the community, please.
3: My name is Jackie Lindsay, and um, I do. I work with organizations, communities, networks committed to social change. Um, I would love for you to say more about where you, where you ended your presentation. Hmm. Um, when you're speaking to, you, there were two points in your, in your lecture, um, one at the end and one somewhere towards the end, where you said, Christianity may also need to be the catalyst for undoing this, the structure that you just described. Yes. And at the end, you spoke about um, a God that sets people free. So could you say more about what that looks like, what you think is required?
2: Excellent question. And um, let me speak directly to what would be required. What I would love to see happen, both with church communities, but also other religious communities, but certainly within the Theological Academy, I think it is absolutely important for anyone who is a Christian to understand in intricate detail how the incarceration system works, in intimate detail what prison life is like, in intimate detail how people are changed, how people are damaged within prisons. It should not be something only a small percentage of people who call themselves Christian know. It should be fundamental to our catechetical formation. Because the prison is at the very beginning, right? the disciple of Jesus knew, they knew, they were going to go to jail. They knew they were going to get arrested. This was a part of it. And why is this important? It's it's not simply a, a kind of selfish formation interest I have, but it's the recognition where our energies ought to be turned. So, to answer your question directly, I would want, where we would begin, is to reshape formation, especially theological formation, with a clear, deep understanding of how incarceration works. Because to understand how incarceration works is to understand how society works. You understand how geography works, as I've been trying to say so carefully. You understand how the construction of neighborhoods, the construction of education, how all of it really circles around the energy of incarceral practices to remove those who are disobedient and to help form us quietly but clearly obedient subjects. To be Christian is already to say no to such formation. But of course, I mean historically the problem is, as I pointed out, very early, if there was a strategic contingent sense of obedience we lost sight of that somewhere very early and holding up Christianity as the premier site to create obedient citizens emerged. So that's where I would begin. That's where I would begin. And I, and I, and I certainly hope here at Harvard there are, there are opportunities for students to spend thinking very carefully about the prison. I hope there are places where students frequent here at Harvard. I hope that's the case. Wink, 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 wink. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Behind you. Uh, you do it
4: uh, Colin Leach, uh, pastor in Boston. You, you touched just, just for a moment on, on the subject of salvation. You yes. You just, just mentioned it. And, and of course, the church controlled salvation. And, and you can imagine and we can imagine how obedience factored into that control of salvation. And mm-hmm. I wonder how in, how you rephrase obedience and disobedience and how that leads or doesn't lead to some new salvation in your way of thinking. Thank you.
2: That's a great question. Uh, what I would love to see happen <clears throat> is for theologians and pastors of others who are trying to think about the intricacies of salvation, of soteriology, of soteriology and in the ways in which Christians think about what it means to be saved, to return to a clear and consistent meditation on the obedience of Jesus. Inside his disobedience, that is to say, we, we forget. No one imagined that Jesus was obediently obeying God. They all imagined him as this Radical disobedient person so that his obedience was not Was not clear and obvious. So the implication the implication for Soteriology if you will the, the implication two ways how we think about what it means to talk about salvation How we think about what it means to display a life that is inside of salvation There ought to be a political and social density to that that looks like the disobedience of Jesus, right? The difficulty that we have theologically is that when we articulate the saving work of Jesus, it forms us, not inside this this clearly dangerous, revolutionary disobedience, that is inside his life, but it forms us in exactly what the Pharisees wanted. So how might we rethink the imaginary of what it means to become an obedient one to God, an obedient one to Jesus? Now, of course, there's the other side of this, and, that, and I'm sure someone would ask this question. I mean, there are so many people today Deeply afraid of religious obedience. That anytime you talk about obedience to God, there are people who get very nervous. Because it does speak of not simply the possibility of revolution, but it speaks of people formed in such a way that they don't fear death. That scares us. That scares us to have people who don't fear death. But here's where, especially those of us who are are inside Christian sensibilities and the Christian story, we we kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. We miss the point. You need people who do not fear death, who can resist the pull of violence. You need people who do not fear death, that can can challenge fundamentally the forms of punishment that so many agree with. You need people who will say death is not an option, who can challenge the state's right to take death, take life, to use death. You have to have people who are no longer afraid of death, because they believe that life has overcome death. Who can do anything of value in this moment, right? So there are people who don't fear death, but who have given themselves over to death as its agents. That's what we don't want. But we do want people who believe so deeply that they are not afraid and they don't Traffic in fear, right? As so much of policing practice, so much of the ideological support of policing practice, it traffics in fear of death, doesn't it? So a soteriology, (laughs) a doctrine of salvation that moves deeply inside what Hebrews talks about, people who all their life were held captive by the fear of death in Jesus are set free. Now, that's, that's worth co- contemplating. Yeah. yeah, 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 Other questions? I'm sorry, I got a little preachy there, y'all, so, <laughs> y- y'all forgive me, you know, I am a Baptist preacher at my heart, but I'm trying to put that away, I'm trying to put that away.
1: Hi, I'm Connie Williams. yes. yes. Um, and I wonder if you could comment on our always ever-present effort to categorize people as deserving and undeserving, and how that plays into uh, obedience, disobedience, and the way in which the state acts.
2: Thank you, thank you. Mrs. Williams offered this wonderful question um, to think about how we often characterize people as deserving or undeserving and how that plays into the ways in which obedience and disobedience function in us. Well obviously part of what is inside of the architecture of obedience and disobedience within Christianity is the meritocracy that's not laid inside of a doctrine of creation, but shows up precisely in how we obey and don't obey. People who obey obviously merit the benefit of the doubt. If, if, and I keep thinking about some of the teachers I've been talking to in in elementary schools who are struggling with this in the way they look at kids, especially kids of color. The 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 impulse to already see the, these little boys, especially these little dark-skinned boys, as how much how much effort and energy should you give to them? What 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 energy do they merit? And the difficulty of changing the imaginary. So that some teachers who really have good hearts, but the fatigue comes the minute they look at this boy. Uh, this girl, hey, okay, but when they look at this boy, it's just, a, so, that, so that ideas of merit are tied to what you imagine are the possibilities of obedience. That's the problem for us. Now, obviously within Christian thought, there, there is always the legacy of, of saying that um, the, the kind of sociological intervention that's a part of the Christian story is that those who others have given up on, God, God never gave up on them. And, and that's true, but it's often put in the, in the place of the, the spectacular. It's not the norm. It's the, it's the spectacular where this child for some, or this adult for some reason, where we saw no obedience, all of a sudden obedience sprung up. And so, yes, they merit, they merit more time and more attention because we see obedience having sprung up in, in, in them. But for so many others, that just is not the case. What we imagine is possible in terms of the level of obedience is precisely the, the, the way we imagine energy to be expended upon that person. If we imagine that the person clearly inside of them doesn't have it within them, then you get what we hear all the time in political conversations about prison and incarceration. There are just some people, Willie, that you cannot save. I had a, a sheriff say that to me. There are just some people that you, you cannot save. They are, they are too far gone. You have to ask, what, what kind of anthropology is that? But more importantly, there is an energy that drives that conclusion that we have to get our minds around because it's present. Uh, let me tell you one positive story, and uh, I hope you get to know this man. He was the, um, I don't know if he still is, but he was the sheriff in Cook County in Chicago. Very thoughtful, thoughtful man. Oh, no, was, he, was he the sheriff or was he the, um, the head perse- prosecutor? I can't remember the man's name. But he was very thoughtful. I was on a panel discussion with him, and I, I wish I would remember exactly what his title was. But he was the first person in incarceration, in law enforcement, who said, I've ever heard say in public that no one is beyond help. I had never heard someone deep inside law enforcement say that, no one is beyond help. Even the person who's in maximum security in lockdown, no one is beyond help. Everyone, it is possible for everyone to be returned to society, he said. And then he said, of course. His position is a minority position. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Williams. Yes, my dear brother.
4: Uh, my name is Farouk Martins, and uh, chief consultant for Eriza Enterprises. Wonderful. Now we do public, mental, and environmental health in the yes. community. My question is this. To be able to understand your level of thinking. Yes. You have to have a certain background, certain form of education. How do you tell a kid who wants to play with the rest of the children and say, Oh, you gotta buy me a water gun? How do you tell that kid? No, you cannot have a water gun. When he sees all his friends. Doing the same thing, are you going to tell them, oh, they can have water gone, but you cannot have water gone? Mm. will not you start thinking that maybe this man is a racist? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. May I repeat back your question? That was a great question. The question was, um, given the le- level of which I've been talking, what would, I, what would I say to a kid? Or what do I say to someone who um, doesn't enjoy uh, this kind of environment of um, this uh, context of discursive practice. What, what would I say? Um, well, before I would speak to the kid, I want to talk to the adults about, and my dear brother also mentioned, you know, if the kid wants a water gun, a gun, and his um, friends have water guns, I would assume, let me, let me add to the scenario, let's say the friends are white and he's black, and he wants a water gun. Because his friends have a water gun, and you say, they can have a water gun, but you cannot have a water gun. I mean, what would you, Why would you say that to him? What would you, how would you explain that to the kid? Well, before I would want to speak directly to the kid, but I do want to speak directly to the kid. Before I want to speak directly to the kid, I want to talk to the adults about where these kids play. Uh, I want to, want to talk to them about the shape of this neighborhood. And I want to talk to people about when and how and in what way police frequent this area. I want, to, I want to have a conversation about that first. So I, I want to talk to people about what does this space say about prison? What does the space already say about prison? What does this space already say about obedience and disobedience? How free is a kid to walk down the street without his or her body already gesturing disobedience? That's why I, I want to talk about them first. Then I do want to come to the kid about the gun. But what I want to do, what I would want to do is I would want to say to all the kids, can we get you different toys? Can we, can we try some different toys than these guns? I know the guns are popular, water guns, and it was, you know, an African-American gentleman who, you know invented the, the, the large water gun thing, which I'm... Uh, <laughs> Thankful for, thank you for inventors. I just uh, I told myself, couldn't you have to something else? Uh, but that's all right. It's a different conversation. But I would want to talk about different ways of play. We don't have to engage in the same kind of discursive practice with, with people who are trying to fight this fight on the streets that we're doing now. And I, I don't want to sound as though I'm, in, I'm thinking inside the same kind of hierarchies of intellectual work, all that kind of foolishness. How can we, with people, think and feel the space that they inhabit? That's what I would want to do, my dear brother. I'd want to start with thinking and feeling the space. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know this area well, but I'm sure, I'm sure if you walk this area, you can feel, you can feel the incarceral realities. You can feel the realities of obedience and disobedience. Obedience and disobedience are not just in your head. They are actually in the ground. They're actually in the way neighborhoods are shaped, sidewalks are shaped, the way police move up and down streets, where people walk, where people don't walk, where bikes move slowly, where bikes move quickly. You can sense it, right? So I would want to engage people in sensing the realities of obedience and disobedience that they are breathing in daily. And then out of that, start to think in carceral practices. Because if I can get them to connect those two, they might see what they don't see. They might see that in these three blocks, things happen that are deeply problematic because of who you might be walking down these streets and how you might be seen. I want them to understand that, right? Because that is, that is the beginning of incarceration before incarceration, and you want to feel that. So you, before you talk to the kids, you want to help people feel the beginning of incarceration before incarceration. When I was a young man, like so many other young brothers, I, I had my encounters with the police. Like so many, I can say, while I respect the police, I've never had a positive encounter with police. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the truth. I'm not trying to be mean or start trouble. I've never, I've never in my life had a positive encounter with a policeman. I've taught many policemen as a professor. But I, and in most cases, I've had good. good, good. <laughs> but I remember as a young man, I, I, I had a bike, and I was just riding my bike. My, my older brother purchased me a bike. It was a wonderful bike. And he said, "Will he stay around the neighborhood now. Stay around the neighborhood. I was right in the neighborhood. So I said, okay. And then I ventured beyond the neighborhood. And he saw me and said, I told you to stay around the neighborhood with that bike. Stay around the neighborhood with that bike. And he said, I ain't worrying about somebody stealing that bike from you. You just stay around the neighborhood. And I didn't. And sure enough, I went into another area. And the minute I hit that area, woo, pulled over. That's your bike? That's your bike? I had forgotten. God. Now, what I'm suggesting to all of you here is that knowledge is in your bodies, what I've just described. That knowledge is in your bodies. You have, you have not connected the dots, many of you, you're not connected the dots between that and the prison cell. They are connected. That's what I'm asking. So, Yes, my dear sister.
3: Um. I'm just wondering how. Oh, I'm sorry, your name? Sorry. My name is Eva, and I uh, work here at the Divinity School.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to meet you. So
3: my, my question is, how, how do we get to a point of um, large numbers of individuals in this society, p- particularly, to question the base, how, how everything that we profit from is really based on the prison system when so many people's lived experience is one of already being in prison, whether they realize it or not. They have grown up in faith traditions that have been enacted as a a prison experience. So the, the ability to even recognize the torture and destruction that prisons have on people is difficult when they already are experiencing life from a perspective of being bound. This,
2: that's an excellent question, my dear sister. And I, I did not spend much time, you probably heard me at a few moments in the lecture mention this, but this is obviously one of the great tragedies of the legacy of Christianity throughout the world, especially among peoples of color. Very often the Christianity that they've been given is one that begins with, begins with the imaginary of bodies constantly in need of discipline, bodies that must be taught to obey. And so an entire Christian vision formed inside this fundamental idea that you always need to obey. That's the beginning of your Christian faith. That's a horrible, and for so many people to, to this day, those forms of tyrannical obedience still govern their ecclesial existence—not just people, not just African Americans, many people—the kind of Christianity that they've been given continues to be deeply inside the master-slave dialectic, deeply inside of it. But we know that. So there needs to be a challenging of that as well. There there needs to be a critique, a reading of church practices that imagine, say, for example, holiness deeply inside the master-slave dialectic. But there's another thing, and I'm getting back to something I just mentioned to this brother. It would be really important, I always say this when I go places, it would be really important for, um, especially intellectuals that inhabit institutions like this, to become deeply involved in zoning policies at the local level. I continue to be very frustrated when I go to uh, communities where there are fine institutions, and I ask how many people in this educational institution go down to the monthly zoning meetings that happen in every community, where the city commissioners sit, you know, and oftentimes they put that on TV, and the commissioners on public television, commissioners are sitting up front, and they they scan the audience. There's like five people there. Those are some of the most important moral meetings that take place in a community. Because zoning meetings determine everything. That little story I told, that happened at a zoning meeting, right? And the fact that we are not there, the fact that we are not there means that we are not in the place that begins to form incarceral spaces, that underwrites the work of the prison, that prepares bodies for prisons. It happens there when someone decides that this is a business area that this is going to be a residential area of homes that start at 600,000 and up. And there'll be no sidewalks to it. So if you are riding a bike and you're near it, what are you doing here? Right. Those are, those are, that's where we need to be. That's where, that's where it starts. So I would love to see, especially in this, I don't know what happens in this community, but I would, I would, lo- I would hope that there would be a number of Harvard Intellectuals, scholars, professors at the zoning meetings. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there must be. My dear brother, you had a question. And then, my dear sister, if you want to, is this the last question? Oh, this should be the last question. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Um. Thank you very much. Um, My question is more. I'm sorry, my dear brother, your name? Oh, my name is uh, Steve Nunez. I'm a second year MTS here at at HDS. Wonderful. Um, My question is let me see if I can formulate this in a non aggressive way. Um, How do we challenge the psychological premises that come before the policy decision making? For example, A few weeks ago, I walk into Andover Library, and as I'm walking in, a white woman says, you need an ID to get in there. So the implication of that is, I must not have an ID in the first place, and that's not a space that I belong in. So even when black and brown bodies end up in these liberal bastions like Harvard Divinity School, we are already facing the psychological consequences. So how, and and I think one of the psychological consequences for those in these predominantly liberal spaces is I can't possibly be, be racist. That's what racism looks like, the Donald Trumps, this, that, and the other. So Remember. how do we begin? to jar this obedient yeah. sort of uh, mentality in a way that that I guess um, predicates the way that we're making policies in the first place?
2: Oh, that's a fabulous question. And I can only um, just partially do justice to it. I think obviously, and you, I'm sure you must have done this, the immediate response, there is an immediate response. Yes, I'm, I belong here. But beyond that, here is the thing we have to analyze. What would lead someone to speak to you about geography in that way? I mean, because that, that's, that's what is amazing me today, the way geography works. To imagine appropriate bodies for a space is already a pedagogical work in the person who spoke to you. And so maybe the task, and, and this is always a difficult task. huh—and um, so many, Baldwin and others spoke about this. How to do this deep intellectual work when there's so much emotional turmoil working at the same time. But we have to try to do it with, and do them together. huh? Face the emotional, emotional work that you have to do while you're trying to do the intellectual work. But the intellectual work being trying to figure out how the geography works and how we might intervene. Obviously, I have a—you know they say I, I, um, I have a long-term strategy, uh, you know, the long game here, which is to change the way geography functions in the imaginary of so many people. And if I can do that, or should—should should I say—if I can get people to do that, then maybe we will end someone ever asking you a question like that. Thank you all very much. Thank you all very much. <laughs>